Stephanie is here to meet you at the back, and all of you with children, and she'll get you your Bible bags. The rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn once more to Genesis chapter 37. We're continuing our study of this amazing first family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this first three generations of the people that God chose to work with and teaching us about life and church and family and our relationship with God. We're going to start with verse 1 in just a moment and uh, do some varied verses within that. One of the uh, best books that I've ever read on congregational life was actually written by a rabbi. It's Rabbi Edwin H. Friedman. He's a family therapist who applies Bowen's family systems theory to the congregation, and it's both church and synagogue. In his book, Generation to Generation, Family Process in Church and Synagogue, Friedman notes that churches are far more like a family than they are an institution. In fact, he would even say that they're more like a body than they are an institution. Another way of saying it is that churches are organic. Uh, They're living organisms of people living together in this single body of Christ, this wonderful family of God. And therefore, when we come into a church, we treat one another uh, not as, as members of an institution so much as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. And we come together in this wonderful family system. And so we therefore share the joys of one another and we share the sorrows of one another. We share the health and we share the dysfunctions that the families bring together. In fact, when we enter a healthy uh, church family, it's in this place that we experience a wonderful Heavenly Father, a mother church, and an empowering Holy Spirit that actually begins to heal us. In all the ways that this world can break you, the church is here to heal and to care for you, to help you grow. But of course, that can only happen as a church itself is healthy as this family that you and I are a part of uh, functions in a way that brings health and wholeness together, then we can bring healing into each other's lives. But when a pastor or when a person uh, brings their own family dysfunction into a congregation and the congregation lets that that dysfunction be present, then a church can actually become harmful. A synagogue can actually become harmful to the people who are a part of it. Now, virtually all family uh, therapy that's done in the world today across all sections uh, has as a major component Bowen's family systems theory. Bowen was a psychiatrist. He was a professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University. Now, I explain all of that to say that 4,000 years ago, when God wanted to explain to humanity what it looks like uh, to be a child of God, to, to live together in harmony, to have peace on earth and goodwill amongst us. He chose to communicate that through a specific family. He chose Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob. And those generations, he worked with them, all the generations uh, to come after that. And it's in that interaction between God and this specific family that he explains to us, both by illustration of what does not work and by illustration of what does, what a healthy 
family should look like, both in our own homes and how we function uh, between our spouses and parents and children and so on, but also how the church of God uh, should interact with one another. So we are reading this account today in Scripture, and the Scriptures themselves say simply, this is the account of Jacob's family line. And we'll go into that in the next few weeks as we study it. Now, I want to take you back a little bit just to put you within context because the lectionary is taking uh, just kind of snapshots of the family of God, and there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. Uh, I would encourage you to take uh, the book of Genesis and Exodus and read it in between the, the services and make sure that you're getting a broad spectrum of it. But we're at the point where Jacob has become Israel. You remember last week. And he has he now walks with a humble spiritual limp as he struggled and wrestled with God and surrendered himself to God. He's now returned home and Esau and he have reconciled but there isn't any trust that's been built. You can you can forgive one another and reconcile, but then you have to build trust uh, back up so that you can live life together. And so after meeting at the Jabbok River, as we talked about last week, Esau returns to the land of Edom. That's on the east side of the Jordan River on the south of the Dead Sea. Jacob, on the other hand, goes to Shechem. That's on the west side of the Jordan and north of the Dead Sea. Now, he will eventually move his family to Bethel, which means simply the house of God. It's a few miles south of Shechem, and it's in the valley of Hebron, and that's where we pick up the story. So in this place where Jacob promised by God and promised back to God that this would be his place, his land, his family as blessed by God, the narrator describes the dynamics of that early family, and it's just a fascinating one that we learn lots and lots of lessons individually and as well as corporately as a church down through these four millennia uh, since this this uh, was written. So Genesis chapter 37, we're going to start with verse 1, go through verse 4, and then uh, skip over a little and go on down. The narrator writes, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, the part that skipped are the two dreams of Joseph, where he has a dream two different times in which he sees his brothers and his fathers bowing down to him. And you can imagine your 17-year-old younger brother telling you that you're all going to bow and worship him and serve him. And so that didn't go over too well. And so now we pick up the story. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. 
And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in, a, in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, and they said to each other, Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take them back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Now Buddha said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own fresh flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now keep that open before you. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this family 4,000 years ago did not have the wisdom of the lesson of their lives, let alone the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And we recognize that these stories are here that we might have wisdom and so I would lift us up as a church family and I would lift us up as individuals and as individual families that we might understand your truth and that we might allow that truth and that health to be a part of our daily existence. And of course, we'll give you the praise. Amen. Now, there are many lessons we can learn from a story such as this. I just pulled five lessons that I want to apply to the dysfunctionality of that family and what it looks like when a family of God, a church, operates with the same kind of dysfunction. So first, a dysfunctional church family allows a person in leadership who is not yet trained or prepared for the responsibility. This causes that person to use dysfunctional attempts to lead. Now, although it doesn't say it directly, it's clear that Joseph, at the age of 17, felt responsible for the family business. And so he gave a report to his father about his brother's work. But Jacob had not taught him how to be a supervisor giving report and to be responsible for the well-being of the group that he's supervising. He hadn't even taught him how to be a good brother or a good friend. 
So this teenager brings a bad report to the father. Now the actual word there means a whispering defamation, a dysfunctional coalition. In family systems, when whispering coalitions divide a church or divide a family, as it does here, it is something that is dysfunctional at the very core of the family. There are us and them that are divided out. In healthy church leadership, there is not whispering secret groups that talk about what we're going to do to them, whoever the them might be, but rather a straightforward, honest, open accountability, a mutual commitment to excellence, a respectful honoring of those that we are helping to succeed in the work that they have to do, whether it's caring for a flock or caring for a flock of people. Now second, a dysfunctional church family chooses leaders by favoritism rather than by qualifications. And therefore they create anger and resentment within the very church or group that that person who was given the position of authority is trying to lead. In Jacob's family, family Joseph was the child of Rachel, the beloved one that he worked the extra time to gain. She was, uh, Joseph was born when Jacob was old, so it's a, a youngest child as of this moment. And so he gave him an ornate robe. Now, to put that in modern terms, it would be like giving a first-year law student a judge's robe or a college freshman a doctoral robe or a high school biology student a doctor's white coat. It's a symbol of authority and privilege and responsibility, but in this case it was not earned. It only came from favoritism of the person in charge. In a dysfunctional church or any uh, organization that is a living, breathing organization, in a dysfunctional church that places honor and privilege on favorites rather than on those who have the gifting and the capability and the training, then there is what is called in family systems a favored child status. And research is very fascinating how when you show favoritism to one individual, especially a child in the family, that the rest of the family begins to be angry and to resent it. And there's a, an underlying a dysfunction and anger in the, in the family or in the church. And it can go on literally for generations as that favoritism of the favorite child has then the favorite child and the favorite child. And the generations then create this angry underlying resentment that begins to build up. In healthy churches, persons are placed in responsibility based on their spiritual gifts, their education, their experience, their capability and teachability, and everyone sees clearly that it's a fair and right and true responsibility that this individual has taken on. In a healthy church, when a person wants a place of uh, honor or prestige, just because they are charming or rich or popular, 
and yet they're not capable of doing the work. It's the responsibility of the healthy church to recognize that that's not the way a healthy church functions. It's not by favoritism or by wealth or by uh, popularity. It's by capability that the, the body of Christ and the church of God operates. Now third, a dysfunctional church family does not address the anger and resentment directly, but it lets it grow into divisions and create a destructive us and them kind of relationship. In Jacob's family, they, meaning the brothers who are now all divided against Joseph and Jacob, their father, have become a coalition. And it's the they and the them kind of coalition. And they plotted. And to plot, the, the Hebrew word there means to have a private kind of conversation behind what we would call closed doors, deciding to deal craftily with the other side. In this case, Joseph and Jacob. They're going to destroy Joseph and lie to Jacob, and they're going to create this family secret that's going to be a, a horrible thing. And in the Sundays to come, we'll see uh, what that uh, requires for reconciliation within the family as Joseph and the family are reunited. In a dysfunctional church or a dysfunctional family, when something goes wrong and people feel it's unfair, there is not open communication of going to the people and talking about it openly, but rather there's this plotting, this scheming, this behind-scenes relationship. And so I just talked with a pastor from another state this week as I was mentoring him. And the church he is in is not a free Methodist church. It's congregationally structured. And they're having all kinds of secret meetings. And the whole congregation is divided. And everyone's upset with everyone else. And these disgruntled divisions, these tangled webs, do harmful things to both those who are plotting and those who are plotted against. And rather than having a, an open and clear communication that comes up with just and, and fair resolution, and this can permeate and this tangled web can destroy. So in healthy churches, people go directly to the people who have made the decisions or who have harmed them. As Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 18, we go directly to the individual. We talk it through so that there can be a gaining not just of reconciliation, but of understanding and trust. And it can grow. And every family uh, can grow uh, strong if there's open and clear communication and not plotting against. The fourth lesson that I would point out, in a dysfunctional church family, manipulation is used. Often even for what they think of as good purposes, instead of standing up to the dysfunction and destruction directly, and calling it what it is, but rather trying to work with it by manipulating it. In Jacob's family, Reuben was the firstborn. He should have been a leader in protecting the youngest brother. But instead of leading his brothers to do what is right by directly saying, this is wrong and we should not be doing this, he tried to manipulate them, get them to not kill him, put him in an empty cistern, so that he could come around and rescue him. 
in a dysfunctional family, in a dysfunctional church, those who should lead don't step up and lead. They have the gifting, they have the ability, they have the place in the family or the church, but instead they manipulate, capitulate, and they pressure, they feel the pressure of the minor majority, and they don't act in open and outward and straightforward ways, but they manipulate behind the scenes. And then last, in a dysfunctional church family, the people betray their own family by selling out their own leaders or transferring their leaders or getting rid of their leaders, often trading them for financial gain. Reminiscent, of course, of Judas, who betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Here Judah sells Joseph for 20 pieces. In a dysfunctional church, we are willing to betray one another for financial reasons. In this instance, it was a baby brother who was disposable. In a dysfunctional church, it can be all kinds of things. We can betray the babies of our congregation by not providing the finances to care for them. We can betray our children, our youth, our elderly by not putting the resources behind the care of them that is necessary. We can, of course, betray leaders and focus all of our stress and attention upon them and scapegoat them, that they're the ones that are causing the difficulty. Again, in family systems therapy, this tangled web is also called a disposable IP, which means there's a person that's kind of chosen by this dysfunction in which the whole family puts all their stress and and uh, uh, difficulty and misunderstanding and anger and then gets rid of the scapegoat thinking that that will somehow solve the family system's stress and difficulty. Now you can see that long ago uh, the Bible taught us by living example some of these deep and abiding uh, ways of life and the destruction of it. Uh, it may have taken us another four millennia to put words to it in the family systems theory and, and what we now understand about, about how churches and synagogues and families and organizations function. But the lessons God gave to us informed us four millennia, which is a thousand generations ago, how we should live. The question now for us, both as a church family and as individual families, are we living in a healthy way? Is the church living in a healthy and whole way? Is our family at home living in a healthy and whole way? Are we bringing wholeness and health uh, to our world? And if not, or if yes in some ways and no in others, what do we need to change? And as we think of other living organisms of which we're a part, are there things that we need to be saying and doing in those places as well? So let's spend time with God.